Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. If you've ever watched a documentary about the Second World War's Pacific Theater, no doubt you've probably seen the stern face of General Douglas MacArthur striding purposefully through knee-deep waters onto Red Beach in the central Philippines on October 20, 1944. Perhaps you're already familiar with the famous line forever tied in with that event, I shall return. Have you ever thought before about what it took to return? I'm not just talking about the long and winding campaign of island hopping and grueling hand-to-hand combat and wretched malaria-filled jungles on the march back from Australia to the Philippines. During the 31 months from MacArthur's escape from the Philippines to the fulfillment of his pledge to return, he not only directed combat at the operational level against enemy forces in the field of battle, he also waged a bureaucratic war to influence and shape the official strategy of the Pacific War. This podcast tells the story of a struggle to fulfill a pledge made by one man to a country he swore to defend. It is also a story of a struggle between logic and passion, the conscious choice of rescuing a friend over vanquishing an enemy. On March 17, 1942, Douglas MacArthur emerged from a B-17 bomber at Bachelor Airfield in Australia's Northern Territories. The general, his family, and select members of his staff had just completed a daring escape from the last American readout on the small island of Corregidor in Manila Bay. Left behind in the Commonwealth of the Philippines were more than 76,000 American and Filipino troops he had commanded. They would become prisoners of war. More than 4,000 Allied and American civilians were also rounded up by the Japanese. The general had only a short time to collect his thoughts before meeting members of the press who had only just learned of his escape from the Philippines. On the back of an envelope he had on hand, MacArthur wrote, The President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines for the purpose, as I understand it, of organizing an American offensive against Japan, a primary object of which is the relief of the Philippines. I came through, and I shall return. I spoke casually enough, wrote MacArthur later in his life of that moment, but the phrase, I shall return, seemed a promise of magic to the Filipinos. Despite MacArthur's seemingly magic promise, at the time nothing short of a miracle would make his pledge a reality. Although he would be given a new command, that of Allied Forces Southwest Pacific Area, he discovered to his horror that there was no relief force massed in Australia. There were only 32,000 Australian and American soldiers on the whole continent, a fraction of whom were in the infantry. On top of that, there were fewer than 100 serviceable aircraft and not one single tank. Furthermore, the most combat-ready Australian soldiers were already fighting for the British in North Africa. After MacArthur's pledge was first broadcast to the world, some American officials expressed consternation at the general's use of the personal pronoun, I. But it was not simply, as some at the Office of War Information as well as at the State Department immediately thought, bluster of a defeated yet defiant commander. He had already made his pledge personally to Major General Jonathan Wainwright before leaving him in command of forces on Corregidor. 
He had also repeated his resolution to return to others along his 3,000-mile escape route to Australia. Although American troops had fought valiantly side-by-side side with their Filipino compatriots, MacArthur understood during those darkest days of the war that the 17 million people of the Philippines felt as if they had been abandoned by America itself. The seeds for that feeling had been planted well before hostilities commenced. By the end of 1941, war for America's armed forces in the Pacific just begun. The war had been raging in Europe for over three years, monopolizing the attention of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Strategically, the die was cast for the Philippines on the heavy cruiser Augusta, floating in the cold, clear waters off the coast of Newfoundland in early August 1941. Although remembered as the birthplace of the Atlantic Charter, Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill also agreed during the Argentia Conference on a Germany-first strategy once America became officially involved in the war. After America's official entry into the war, that strategy was reaffirmed between Churchill and Roosevelt at the Arcadia Conference, which was held in Washington on December 22, 1941, the very day the Japanese troops stormed ashore in Langayan Gulf, Philippines. Considering the immediate public outcry for revenge after the Pearl Harbor raid on December 7, one would think that the Germany First strategy would have changed. This was not the case. Merely four days after the Pearl Harbor attack, Germany declared war against the United States. That gave the president just the political cover he needed to maintain the Germany First strategy. In short, strategic decisions made at the highest levels before the war doomed MacArthur's forces in the Philippines when the war began. The fall of the Philippines gave MacArthur his most profound experience of defeat. A less distinguished officer might not have survived such a setback. It was MacArthur's long-standing reputation, forged in France during the First World War and burnished during his assignments as superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy and as Army Chief of Staff that helped him overcome the loss of the Philippines and remain a relevant player in the bureaucratic battles ahead. He had been as unprepared as many other Allied military leaders for the Japanese juggernaut through the Pacific. Two other high-ranking officers, Admiral Husband Kimmel and General Walter Short, were relieved of command in Hawaii in the wake of the Pearl Harbor attack, while MacArthur, in contrast, was awarded the Medal of Honor shortly after his arrival in Australia. Had it not been for MacArthur's still-shining reputation and his popularity with the American people, he would have had no hope of fulfilling his pledge. While no short or camel clubs sprang up all over the country in those first few months of the war, MacArthur clubs were. Despite the resonance MacArthur's pledge carried in the Southwest Pacific, and in many parts of the United States. It did not, however, inspire many other senior leaders on the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Washington, or even the other operational commanders in the Pacific. Chief of Naval Operations Ernest King on the Joint Staff, and Admiral Chester Nimitz, commander of the Pacific Ocean Area of Operations, had sharp disagreements with MacArthur's strategy of putting the Philippines in the center stage of the Pacific War. The Joint Staff had been created during the war, in part to inform President Roosevelt on military matters. Compared to this body of senior officers who, by virtue of their position, had Roosevelt's ear, MacArthur had only the authority of a theater commander, and a distant one at that. Only victory after victory in the field of battle and the resulting confidence invested in him by the President would lead to the ultimate fulfillment of his pledge. Even after MacArthur moved his headquarters northward to New Guinea, he continued to privately wonder whether he could fulfill his pledge when American strategic imperatives were still invested in Europe and North Africa. In August 1942, he wrote to a friend, The way is long and hard here, and I don't quite see the end of the road. To make something out of nothing seems to be my military fate in the twilight of my service.
I've led one lost cause, and I am trying desperately not to have it, too. Privately wondering aloud to his staff whether or not he was leading what he called a forlorn hope, MacArthur's relentless drive to push back the Japanese was insatiable. Craved battlefield victories that any seasoned commander knew would serve as valuable currency during bureaucratic battles to come. MacArthur was at his most uncompromising in the final weeks of 1942, when he was no longer on the defensive, yet he had not achieved any victory. After a field commander became bogged down by well-entrenched Japanese defenders in the town of Buna in northern New Guinea, MacArthur removed him, telling his replacement, Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger, If you don't replace the commanders, I shall, adding, If you don't take Buna, I want to hear that you are buried there. He needed a major victory one to rival that for the Battle of Guadalcanal being managed under Nimitz and Vice Admiral William Bull Halsey. That would allow him not only to take the initiative away from the Imperial Japanese Army, but it would also rob his rivals in the American Navy of some of the initiative as well. After taking Buna, he was also able to declare his first major victory in New Guinea two weeks before Halsey's forces could do the same in Guadalcanal. His relationship with Halsey from that time onward, however, would be different than that which experience with other Navy leaders. Despite the tempestuous and sometimes toxic relationship between MacArthur and King and the ongoing rivalry with Nimitz, Admiral Halsey would ultimately prove to be MacArthur's greatest ally in the Central Pacific. Halsey had originally thought of MacArthur as, in his words, a self-advertising SOB. And he was originally skeptical about the validity of MacArthur's pledge as Nimitz and King. Not one to mince words, he could not hold back from accusing the general during one early planning session of, in his words, putting your personal honor alone above the good of our country. Challenging the Southwest Pacific Commander-in-Chief, let's get together and solve this like men working together. Although MacArthur's staff was aghast at their boss being talked to in this way, the fact was that MacArthur's own seaborne forces, which were essentially the remnants of the pre-war U.S. Asiatic fleet, were nowhere near capable of removing all the obstacles between New Guinea and the Philippines by themselves, particularly the Japanese Southern Pacific headquarters at Rabaul. He didn't even have one aircraft carrier under his permanent control. The general took the gruff-talking admiral's affront and stride. Once they did start working together, grudging mutual respect emerged between MacArthur and Halsey, which resulted in cooperation. In a series of interlocking operations called Cartwheel, Bull Halsey's carrier task forces and marines would work in tandem in the Solomon Islands to the east, with MacArthur's U.S. and Australian forces charging through New Guinea and New Britain in the west, until, in a pincer movement hundreds of miles wide, they boxed in Rabaul, where Halsey's carrier planes helped in neutralizing the heavily fortified base. Back in the Philippines, the victorious Imperial Japanese forces could not solidify their hold over the archipelago, nor win the allegiance of its 17 million inhabitants. In their own way, they did their own part to ensure MacArthur's return through their brutal treatment of the Filipino people, inspiring an underground resistance led in part by officers of MacArthur's Allied Intelligence Bureau. plan hatched by one of the leaders of the secret army gave MacArthur's pledge top billing in the occupied islands. Colonel Wendell Fertig, guerrilla leader operating on the southern Philippine island of Mindanao, proposed a propaganda campaign in early August 1943 which would utilize MacArthur's pledge to keep faith in America, resistance against the Japanese, alive. The idea quickly caught on with Lieutenant General Courtney Whitney of MacArthur's intelligence staff, as well as Colonel Carlos Romulo, MacArthur's former press relations officer who was then serving as Philippine ambassador to the United States. 
plan called for thousands of pencils, chocolate bars, sewing kits, matchbooks, and cigarettes. Labeled with MacArthur's pledge superimposed over his signature, he secretly sent to the Philippines. When asked to authorize the clandestine campaign to distribute these items behind enemy lines, MacArthur wrote, No objection. I shall return. By mid-1944, the fulfillment of the pledge was within sight. There was still one more bureaucratic battle for MacArthur to fight, and he had to do it alone. Arrayed against him were the officers of the Joint Staff, every one of them he once outranked but who were now greater to him in authority. All supported bypassing the Philippines in favor of invading Formosa, the island to the north of the Philippines now known as Taiwan. Even General George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, questioned MacArthur's motives for challenging the planned champion by the Joint Chiefs, informing him by wire, It seems to me that you are allowing personal feelings and Philippine political considerations to override our great objective, which is the early conclusion of the war with Japan. Also that you confuse the word bypass with abandonment. For MacArthur still haunted by the thousands of troops and millions of civilians left behind in the Philippines, there was no such distinction between the two words. At a mansion near Waikiki Beach, Hawaii, on the evening of July 27, 1944, a decisive meeting took place between President Roosevelt, General MacArthur, and Admiral Nimitz. It was not just MacArthur's first and only chance to take his case directly to the President on how best to achieve victory over Japan. It would also decide the destiny of the Philippines, and, consequently, MacArthur as well. Nimitz began the session by matter-of-factly laying out the plan for taking Formosa as handed down to him by Admiral King and the other Joint Chiefs. Skillfully cross-examining Nimitz, President Roosevelt drew from the Admiral a concession that a Formosa campaign would only be completely successful if the invasion was supplied and covered from harbors and airfields in the Philippines. MacArthur then took the floor in front of a giant Pacific map backdrop. MacArthur made an impassioned demand to keep the Philippines center stage. Nimitz probably looked on, expressionless, but a dispatch he made to Admiral King describing MacArthur's strident oratory about the Philippines during an earlier visit with the general gives us an insight on what he must have been thinking. Everything was lovely and harmonious, Nimitz wrote, until the last day of our conference, when I called attention to the last part of the JCS directive which required him and me to prepare alternate plans. Then he blew up and made an oration of some length on the impossibility of bypassing the Philippines, his sacred obligations there, redemption of the 17 million people, blood on his soul, deserted by the American people, etc., etc. After a little over 90 minutes of debate, contestants momentarily withdrew. Later that evening, MacArthur managed to get a few minutes alone with the president, in which he drove the point home once more. You cannot abandon 27 million loyal Filipino Christians to the Japanese in favor of first liberating Formosa and returning it to China, MacArthur told Roosevelt. American public opinion will condemn you, Mr. President, and it would be justified. As President, Roosevelt had not only coldly logical strategic factors to consider, but also as a politician he had to contend with the political ramifications of leaving the Philippines in the clutches of Japan. Roosevelt had also been nominated for an unprecedented fourth term, and it cannot have been lost on him that a major military victory from the ever-popular MacArthur might help produce a major election victory for himself. Taking these factors into account, 
Roosevelt told his Southwest Pacific Area commander, Well, Douglas, you win. But I'm going to have a hell of a time over this with that old bear, Ernie King. MacArthur made good on his pledge at Laetis Red Beach less than three months after his conference with Roosevelt and two months ahead of schedule. Less than a month after MacArthur's return to the Philippines, Franklin Roosevelt made his own triumphant return to the White House. Victory on the battlefield translated into victory at the ballot box. As William Tecumseh Sherman gave Abraham Lincoln Atlanta during the Civil War, by keeping his pledge to return, MacArthur had given his president the Philippines. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.